0: In three, two, one.
1: In a commoditized and competitive world, buyers have unlimited choices in how they solve their problems. They also have vast information on the internet about those solutions. As a matter of fact, according to recent Gartner research, buyers only spend 17% of their time meeting with sales professionals What this means is the ability to communicate unique value for your product or service in early-stage selling conversations is critical. With these challenges as a backdrop, what if you could elevate the perceived value of your product or service or move more prospects through the early stages of the buyer's journey? Well, you can. And to help us understand how is my guest, author, speaker, and coach, David Kirchin. Hi David, welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. Michael, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Now, where are we talking to you from today? A good old Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. Great hub. Get to Atlanta on multiple occasions. I always joke driving around Atlanta can be interesting as well. You've got that one street in Atlanta. It goes north, east, west, south. It goes every direction and changes direction. It's very much a challenge. I know for the locals, it's probably a lot easier, but for us visitors, it can be a bit of a challenge. But how long have you been in an Atlanta area? I've been here since 1970, so obviously have seen a
0: lot of changes. But yes, Peachtree Street is one of the constants.
1: Delighted to have you. We're going to be talking about your book. It's called 6X, How to Convert More Prospects into Customers, a Roadmap for Early-Stage Sales Conversations. Excellent book. I've had a chance to read it. my mind, you've really got this thing covered, and we're going to delve right into it. But before we get started into that, what's the lay of the land in your mind? Prior to the pandemic, I used to tell our clients, here's what it looks like 10 years from now. And in my mind, it's now accelerated. The pandemic, if it did anything, it accelerated those processes, the way we buy, and it's changed things. What's your take on that?
0: Yeah, I actually think about it with a little, not a little, but a lot of empathy for the sales professional, because most of the organizations that I'm working with today, very Zoom based or whatever the program it is, it could be team or Zoom. That's where they're spending the majority of their time having conversations with prospects and customers. And if you know anything about human behavior, it's difficult to connect with another human being when you're talking to them on a flat screen and you're not able to make eye contact and be there with them in person. It's created a number of challenges. For sales professionals, and you're right, I think the pandemic accelerated that. We probably were moving in that direction where a lot of the selling conversations were going to be done on the computer and being being done remote. But obviously, the pandemic made all of that happen a lot quicker. And then the other thing that's happening, sales professionals are isolated. I can't tell you how many sales reps I've talked to that have spoken to things like, I'm a little depressed. I I just am not around people in the way that I used to be. I'm not in the office with my peers. So that's the side of it that I really, I've been experiencing and empathizing with and talking with sales professionals today.
1: Yeah, I would agree with you. Most managers and CEOs and companies we work with are saying, how do we get our people back out face-to-face again and not just on the meetings? There's five generations of buyers in the marketplace and 19 channels we've identified of communication. And every generation has its own preference for communicating. You and I would go meet in person. A millennial might prefer to have a text or an email or some other form of communication. And so it's hard for salespeople because as they try and build consensus within the organization, every person they're trying to build consensus with is gonna have a different method of communication. So it's slowing down the sales processes. We're seeing cycles move from four to seven months on average nationally and even longer. So it is a bit of a challenge, but we're gonna talk about how to accelerate some of that stuff. Now you begin in your book 6X with a great example of commoditization. Explain how the market's changed over the last several decades and what you mean by that.
0: Yeah, in the beginning of the book, I talk about three things, coffee, jeans, and TV stations. And again, being a child of the 1970s, what that meant was from a coffee standpoint, you had Folgers, Maxwell House, that's pretty much it. Jeans, it was Wrangler or Levi's, which, by the way, I always fussed at my parents because they bought the knockoffs from JCPenney and I didn't have a little red tag for Levi's. And then TV stations, ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS. Those were all the choices. But when you look at today's world from a consumer standpoint, you've got numerous choices in all three of those categories. That obviously has carried over into the business world as well. In the 70s, 80s, and leading into the 90s, before the internet came to be, buyers were really looking at the technical specs of a product or service. So to win as a sales professional, you had to be an expert around the product because the buyer did not have access to the internet and didn't have access to all this resource to figure out what options do I have to solve these problems? And so in today's world, in some cases, the buyer may be more educated about the technology or product or service that you represent, which brings us to the primary differentiator. And that is in the way that you communicate the value around the product or service that you represent.
1: Yeah, the models definitely changed. I remember things started with big companies around 1920s. And I'm with you. I grew up with those state. My TV was black and white. Ed Sullivan was Sunday night show. And we're dating ourselves. My baby pictures were black and white. And we had to send them to film for development. But there was always information disparity. So you needed a salesperson to show up and educate. You couldn't search the internet. It was brochures. It was collateral material. We showed up and we were. The companies had the edge or one ahead process, if you will. They were one up on their actual competitors. And that's now evolved. So to your point, when you show up, if you're sounding just like every other salesman, they probably know more than you do. So the key is to come at them with something else. And we'll get into that. In your book, in chapter one, you talk about mindset, first of all, and changing and developing that winning mindset. What's that look like?
0: Yeah, the best way to explain that is to give you a, a quick example. When my younger daughter was engaged, I like to have fun with my future son-in-laws and some of the questions and interaction that I, I would have. You. I hear you. Yeah. And so we're sitting at a fundraising car wash. We have a little bit of downtime. And I look at my son-in-law and I ask this question tongue in cheek. I go, hey, Levi? Katie's grown accustomed to a pretty affluent lifestyle in the area of Atlanta that she's grown up. I'm curious, what kind of work are you going to get into to support that lifestyle? And he looked at me and he goes, anything but sales. Interesting. And my response was, okay, you know what I do, right? And you just insulted your future father-in-law. Why not sales? And he goes, because I don't want to talk somebody into doing something that they really shouldn't do. That's Hmm. sometimes the perception of sales. So when you get to a winning mindset, here's why that happens. The reason that people have a negative perception of the sales profession is because the salesperson has the wrong mindset. They're looking at it from a transaction of, hey, I see dollar signs dancing over your head and I have to figure out a way to get those dollar signs into my back pocket. And if that's your mindset, human beings have an innate ability to know when the conversation is not about them and when it's really a selfish motivation that the salesperson is bringing to the relationship. So that type of mindset is immediately going to create a defensive posture on the part of the prospect because they're going to feel like they're being manipulated. So in order to have a winning mindset, you have to shift the focus from the success that you're going to have to the benefit or the outcome for the prospect. And there's a very simple question that I pose in the book that any salesperson needs to be able to answer before they start building a relationship with a prospect. And the question is simply this, how is that prospect going to be better off as a result of doing business with you. Now, you'll notice I didn't say company. I didn't say, how is that company going to be better off? Because business doesn't happen unless two people come into agreement. And in order for that to happen, the person that you're building a relationship with has to know that you're in it for them. So if you can answer that question in integrity as to how that person is going to be better off, make that the focus of the relationship. Make that outcome the end result that you're looking for, not just a transaction of money or a sale. And this has helped a number of sales professionals not only have the right intent in the relationship and have that be their North Star, but it also helps with their motivation and energy that they bring to the whole role of a sales profession. If you're introducing time, freedom, peace of mind, an opportunity for a promotion, again, things that are all very personal to the person that you're building a relationship with, then as a human being, you can put your head down at night and sleep in peace, knowing you've made a difference in the world. And so that's what's involved in having a winning mindset is really putting the focus on a very specific outcome that you want to create for your prospects
1: you think that comes with maturity? I know when I started my career, I was very transactional. I'm going to go back a number of years and decades, but my job was to position the product or the service, go over the benefits with you and then try and close on that deal. And then we celebrated the closes without real regard to the customer at that time in those early days. Right. And then as I mm-hmm. evolved and got older, I realized I'm really come from contribution and that they're not buying the thing, whatever the thing is, they're buying what the thing does and what it means to them and their business on a personal level. So it was an evolution for me need to get there. And over the last couple of decades, that's been the way I position it too. So it becomes win-win, not win for me, lose for you. Have you? Would you agree with that? I do think it comes with maturity, but I don't
0: think that's an excuse for the younger sales professionals not to adopt the right mindset. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think, yeah. again, I think you and I probably both grew into the realization of
1: that, but for a young sales professional listening to this podcast, hey, guess what? You don't have an excuse now. No, no, excuses. And the information is there. In chapter two, you cover about decision-making and how we make decisions. And we talk about people buy first with emotion, justify with logic second, and mm-hmm. how the role of the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, and how we can embed those triggers, if you will. So we stack the deck. We basically want to stack that deck so that we can deliver value, but we can actually earn the right to have that conversation. How important is the decision-making process for us to understand that? So for our younger people that are maybe listening or people want to dive into that a little further, what insights? to give them on that
0: yeah it's critical and it's interesting because in my 35 years in corporate America and leading sales teams more times than not i was coaching sales professionals on how to build a logical case a logical business case right hey here's the impact that it's going to have on your business and it's not to say that's not still important there still is that element that needs to be there and that makes sense yeah in the conversation, but the emotional aspect is actually more important. I'll share with you a quick story just as yeah, a way sure. to emphasize this. In the early 2000s, I was leading a sales team selling digital x-ray technology into the dental world. So before the early 2000s, if you went into a dentist office, what they do, they put that film, right? in that little holder, and then they ran back to a lab and they developed the film, which would take 15 to 20 minutes. And they'd come back and go, oh, Michael, you got a cavity. Here's what it looks like. But with digital x-ray, what they do is they drop the sensor into your mouth and they get the instant result. Guess what that meant? That meant a compelling return on investment for digital x-ray. Get rid of the cost of the film. Get rid of the time delay. You can see more patients. So here's what we did. We put together an ROI calculator, which, again, is pretty common in the sales world. And I'll never forget this. We're doing a trade show in Orlando, Florida for the dental world. One of the doctors for one of the largest dental practices in Orlando walks into the booth. So, of course, I engage him in a conversation. And at some point, I pull out the ROI calculator and I said, hey, here are the assumptions of this ROI calculator. And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, you're being conservative. And I said, good. Anything that comes out of it, you're going to have some confidence in. He said, sure. So he gave me his numbers. I hit the magic button, came back with on a twenty five thousand dollar investment four month payback. And after that, he would realize anywhere from 80 to 100,000 to his bottom line. So we both looked at the numbers and I asked him again, hey, do you agree with those numbers? And he goes, yeah, I already told you that you were being too conservative. I said, outstanding. We're going to put this on a credit card. Are we going to finance it? What are we going to do? And he looked at me and he goes, oh, no, I'm not going to buy. And I was, I was dumbfounded. Yeah. Yeah. I'm dumbfounded. And I'm like, okay. So I, I did something very unusual. I looked at him and I said, hey, I'm the sales leader for this organization. And I just made a decision. You will never be a client of ours. And he looked at me funny and he goes, why? And I said, here's why. I'm getting ready to ask you a question. And I don't want you to think I'm asking the question to get you to buy from me. So I'm taking that off the table. You'll never be a customer of ours. Here's the question. Why are you not ready to buy? And he looked at me and he said, I don't know. I'm just not. So here's what was going on in his brain. The limbic system, which is where the seat of emotions are. Is Again, that's where you experience all your emotions from love, joy, hate, peace. Every human emotion is in the limbic system. The limbic system does not have language. So when you get asked a question around a decision that you've made, if it's a a very important decision, like buying this type of technology, the limbic system made that decision because there was no emotion and it didn't have the ability to communicate to me why it made that decision because the limbic system doesn't have language. Now, imagine if I had this conversation with the dentist. Hey, tell me a little bit about your practice. It's me and three other doctors, and my wife is the office manager. She runs the whole show. Oh, great. So what does your wife want out of the practice? Lately, she's been beating me up for a brand-new Mercedes convertible. Oh, really? How much does one of those cost? It's about eighty grand, Huh. So how does that make you feel that you're not able to get your wife a brand-new Mercedes? Oh, yeah, I usually get depressed, and it's a nagging thing right now. And If your patients feel that, how do you think they're going to respond? Now they're probably not going to come back. And I said, hey, if I could show you a way to not be depressed and actually to do something amazing for your wife, would you be interested in that conversation? Sure. Great. It's called digital x-ray. Let me show you. So it's that emotional element that has to be there in order for a human being to make a decision. And Antonio Damasio, a brilliant Italian scientist, he discovered this because he studied people that had damage to the limbic part of their brain. Michael, they literally could not make decisions. They would give them simple questions and simple decisions, and they just look at the facilitator and go, I I can't decide.
1: Great example. And you talk about the language, and I can tell just by the, the verbiage in your conversation, you're setting the stage to identify those emotions. So we need to be flexible. And this is where wisdom and insights come in and having a roadmap. And we'll talk about the roadmap. You know, right. You've identified the three sins of selling, or you call them the three sins of selling. Walk us through the top three biggest mistakes that kill sales conversations.
0: Yeah. So the top three would be number one, salespeople tend to share too much information. And there's actually a hormone that's behind this and it's called dopamine. So dopamine is a short-term feel-good hormone. I'll give you a quick example. Most people have a to-do list that drives their activity in a specific day. So Michael, how do you feel when you check one of the items on your to-do list. How does that make you feel?
1: Yeah, it's a positive. Ding, it's, yay, I got something done, accomplishment. Dopamine.
0: So that's the same hormone. And so what happens is when you meet somebody for the very first time, you're most comfortable talking about things that you're knowledgeable about or passionate about. And the reason for that is because as you're talking, dopamine is dripping on your brain and making you feel good. So it leads to what I like to refer to as a drug-induced feature dump. You feel great when you're talking about everything that your product is and does, and you end up sharing way too much information. And the problem with that is that human beings are only really able to remember a few things. Right. And so the most important things that you want to communicate to a prospect will end up getting lost in a volume of information. So that's number one. Number two, nothing unique is showing up in the conversation. We were talking about this earlier, but the fact that sales professionals are being constrained to using Zoom. Guess what else that they're using inside of Zoom? PowerPoint. Yeah, Think about the four prospect on the other side of the screen that has two or three vendors that they're looking at to solve a problem, and they show up to another Zoom call and another PowerPoint. Nothing unique. So nothing unique is showing up in the way that the salesperson is communicating the value. But the other area of uniqueness is they have to focus the conversation around their unique ability to solve a problem. Otherwise, they end up looking and sounding like the last salesperson that just walked through the door, or did another Zoom call, and the last one really is the most damaging, and that is the conversations all about you, the sales professional, or you, the business or product or service that you represent. So I do this, and we do that, and we've got world-class customer service, and we've been in business for ten years, and we do business with fifty percent of the Fortune five hundred, and it's all we, 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 and I, I, I. Right. And you and I both know that the other person that you're having a conversation with is sitting there thinking about them. That's right. All they're hearing is information that's about the salesperson. So those really are the the three biggest mistakes. And by the way, the focus on you as a sales professional, that especially happens when the prospect feels like, hey, you're just in this for you. You're just in it for the sale. That's all you're trying to accomplish. And again, that gets back to our earlier conversation of having an incorrect mindset which is absolutely going to kill those relationships before they even start to happen.
1: Hey, you make some excellent points. And this is a challenge for some of the young people today because the models that they're seeing is they're seeing some of the old guard or older managers are using legacy style approaches. And then they're going out on training calls and they're using the same stuff. They're rehashing it. So it's really changing that whole conversation up. There's a great exercise where go into a sales call and you can't talk about your company. You can't talk about your products. You can't ask them what their challenges are because you, <laughs> A, you should know what their challenges are. And you can't tell them what you've done or any work you've done for you do any of those it's an immediate default and boom you get kicked to the curb and most people just get scared to death with that because they go in there with their canned pitches or their really slick powerpoint that marketing's created for them and as a veteran sales expert you do have some insights obviously on how to overcome some of these mistakes and turn the conversation around when it's not going well so let's say we go into an approach things aren't going the way we want can we turn it around in that conversation
0: Yeah. Again, it gets back to something that we've already touched on, and that is to take the focus off of you and put that focus on the prospect. And here's why that's so difficult to do. Michael, you and I, since we've been walking around as little kids, and this is true for every human being, we perceive the world through our point of view. And it's a challenge and it's uncommon to find salespeople that are able to look at the world from the prospect's point of view. And you were talking about, you should know the challenges. Yeah, you should, because you talk to people just like the person that you're trying to build a relationship with every day. And so I tell sales professionals, hey, in the first five minutes of a call, don't ask this question. Hey, Mr. Prospect, what keeps you awake at night? Yeah. Don't ask that question. You just telegraph that you don't know anything about them. So what you want to do is focus on what you do know about them. And so one of the ways that you could shift the conversation is maybe speak to a trend or some research that has shown up in their world that they may not be aware of. And so an interesting one for sales professionals, I tell sales leaders this all the time. Hey, you know, that 80, 20 principle that typically is play within a sales organization. Yeah. Did you know that it's now 83, 17? It's actually gotten worse over time. Not better. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So again, by bringing insight and value around things that, you know, because you're dealing with people just like them every day, all of a sudden they're perceiving this conversation as, Hey, you're bringing value to me. You're not just talking about your product or service. You're talking about things that are going on in my world, things that I may not have known of. And I'm starting to realize that you're very credible and trustworthy because of how you've shifted the focus of the conversation.
1: Yeah, exactly. Instead of calling up and asking, hey, we want a meeting, come tell you how wonderful we are and our products and services and who we get to do work for. It's, hey, David, one of my roles at our organization is to brief executives to three emerging trends we see impacting your business in the next 18 to 24 months. And if it's not keeping you up at night, now it soon will be. And we go for that. So we create that compelling reason to it. But you have to show up and it can't be about the product or services. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions featuring ActiveCampaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? Active Campaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C, and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose Active Campaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with David Kirchin. I'm reminded of Don Miller, where he talks about story brand that model, the hero's journey, where the hero of the stories, and we use Luke Skywalker as the example, you don't want to be Luke. You don't want to be the hero of this meeting with your client. The client is the hero. Your job's to be the Obi-Wan Kenobi or Yoda, depending on who you like the best. And I like Obi-Wan, just he's got the gray beard going, and so do I, so I can relate with a little bit more. But it's asking questions, it's guiding, it's not solving their problems, but it's guiding them through the process, and they have to know that you're one ahead of them in the process so that you have something to bring some value to them. No, I think you're bang on. And that's a great way to turn the conversation around is to start bringing something that they don't know. You say that understanding human nature is a vital part of sales. So what does a salesperson need to know today? How people make decisions before trying to make the sale? What's important for them there?
0: Yeah. So there's really two things that go into that. A common mistake that sales professionals may make is they show up and talk about everything that the product is and does. And they need to understand that while they're doing that, the prospect's trying to figure out, what does this mean to me? And if they're trying to figure that out, they're not listening with their full attention, which means they're not going to remember a lot of what your product is and does. And so this goes back to something that you touched on earlier, and that is that human beings make decisions based on meaning and emotion and justify it with logic and reason. A prospect has to understand what the product means to them and the corresponding value before they're going to invest any time or energy or future conversations around, again, your particular product or service. And another really interesting example, I had the opportunity to be in the room with 25 Oracle consultants early in my career with master messaging. These were the most accomplished salespeople I've ever been in a room with. And they heard me make that statement that people make decisions based on meaning and emotion and justify logic and reason. And there was a gentleman sitting off to my right that raised his hand. And I said, hey, yeah, do you have a question? He goes, no, I disagree with you. And I said, Why? And he said, because I'm the most logical person you'll ever meet, I make every decision based on logic and reason. And if you were to compare me to Mr. Spock, he would look like an emotional mess. That's how logical I am. And so I did something as a facilitator you're not supposed to do. I went off script. And so I looked at him and I said, "Okay, let's explore that. What was the last major purchase that you made either for you, your family or in your business? And he goes, oh, that's easy. I bought a new car six months ago. And I said, "Okay, don't say another word. Just hang tight for a minute. So I turned to the rest of the room and I said, hey, let's help your teammate out. If you were to put your logic hat on your head, what makes and models of cars
1: would you buy? Michael, what
0: do you think they said? Well,
1: Probably something basic, something functional, a Kia, something gets you from A to B.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They said Kia, Prius for gas mileage, for safety. Even car short. Yeah. I noticed he's getting uncomfortable. And so I turned back to him after a minute or two and I said, Hey, your teammates have given some great examples of what you would buy if it were strictly a logical exercise. Can you right. tell the room what kind of card you buy? He tried to whisper it to me. He goes, I bought a BMW. I I said, a BMW, it. the ultimate driving machine, that German engineering, the Corinthian leather, the experience that you have on the road. He goes, All right. All right, you're right. It was an emotional decision, but I got a great deal. I said, There's the logical justification for the emotional decision that you made. But what he didn't take into account, Michael, is that 90 percent of decision making is happening subconsciously.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: So he thought consciously he thinks he's making a logical decision, but he's not giving any credence or any attention to the subconscious, which is, again, where all of that emotion comes into play. So I get asked this question a lot. David, introducing emotion in a selling conversation. How do you do that? I said, The primary way that you do that is you help your prospect understand what the product means to them. Because as human beings, when we experience meaning, there's typically a corresponding emotion that goes along with it.
1: Correlated, sure.
0: Yeah. And so there there has to be that element. And then the other thing is, if you're rightly communicating with a prospect around the challenges that they're experiencing, and you ask the right open-ended questions, as they start to describe their world today... They're going to experience the emotion of that. So there will be emotion that will show up in the conversation. It's just up to you to know the right questions to ask, to allow them to
1: experience those emotions in the conversation that you're facilitating. And then identify those emotions and how can you employ them? No, you make good sense. If it was all about logic, we would all wear the same watch. We would all have the same computers. We would all Mm. ask people, what made you buy a Mac versus PC? We'd all drive the same car. Kids would all be named the same. (laughs) And just for expediency's sake, I think George Foreman figured that one out from from a logical point of view. And if we see long sales cycles, people don't realize the role this has in business. Whenever I hear our clients talk about long sales cycles or things like I need to think about it, we need to think about it. I tell them it's you, you personally but it's a process the problem is we take them down a process and our process is a logical process and i know you have an engineering background and it's really about engineering a process that triggers and invokes those emotional triggers and embeds them into the process. What's the change from status quo to where it would be with our solution. So it's a huge role with it, that, And that's for sure. We all want to stand out from the competition. It's the goal of everybody to differentiate ourselves, at least authentically. What do you think is the best way to differentiate ourselves from the crowd in today's marketplace? That's an easy one. Whiteboarding. whiteboarding, And again, there's a little bit in the book about whiteboarding, but
0: the reason that so there's just a little bit is because it's a difficult thing to really explain how to execute just in a few pages in a book. Here's why whiteboarding. There is a whiteboarding capability inside of both Zoom teams and most of the common platforms that we use today. 95% of the sales professionals don't use it. They default to PowerPoint. When I use whiteboarding in conversations that I have with sales leaders to communicate the value that they've realized in their sales team. When I whiteboard without fail, at the end of the conversation I have with that sales leader, here's the question they ask. Can you teach my team to do what you just did on that call? And my answer is yes, absolutely. Here's why whiteboarding is so effective. PowerPoint, more times than not, that PowerPoint deck has been created by who? Marketing department or some sales VP. Right. Not the person that's conducting the conversation.
1: No. So who gets credit for that PowerPoint? The executive. And it's linear too. It's linear. You have to follow that path. There's no bobbing and weaving. There's no adjusting. There's right no flexibility with it.
0: So if the executive or marketing department gets credit and you're trying to build credibility with a prospect, you're losing a tremendous opportunity. Yeah, I agree. Now contrast that with whiteboarding. When you start whiteboarding, there's a couple of things that happens. First of all, the amygdala is, wait, I wasn't expecting this, so I need to pay attention and make sure nothing dangerous is happening over here in this whiteboard, which means they're going to be listening and paying attention to what's being drawn and said in that conversation, and that's going to create more memory. So they'll be walking away with a higher degree of memory. As a matter of fact, John Medina in his book, Brain Rules, where he codified 10 basic principles on how human beings' brains behave, one of the things he found was if you have a verbal conversation with somebody, they'll remember 20% of what you said two days later. If you anchor it around a visual, they'll remember 70%. Not only would whiteboarding be more intriguing and more engaging because it's unexpected, but you get credit for everything that's being said around that whiteboard. And here's where it gets really fun. You can hand off the control of that whiteboard to the person that you're having a conversation with and go, What does that look like in your world? And get them involved in actually collaborating around this whiteboard. Now, I know there are going to be sales professionals listening to this podcast going, That sounds like a lot of work. They're right. But guess what? It takes time and effort to be creative and to stand out from the norm. You can be just like everybody else and not take time to think of ways that you can be creative in the way that you're communicating. You can be just like everybody else, but you're going to get the same results. Or you can choose to be different and creative in some of the techniques that you can use, even in a Zoom conversation, to stand out from the rest. And they'll walk away. Your prospects will walk away from that call going, talking to somebody in the hall or somebody that they bump into inside their team. Hey, you should see what Michael did on that call. Let me show you what he drew in the conversation that we had
1: they might even want a copy of it. No, I think you're bang on. When we sit there and just talk about it, or we go through a scripted presentation that marketing developed, we're missing the boat by engaging them and engaging their brain, both levels, they are going to be paying attention to that. And you talk about this in the book, in order to get to the second presentation, the second meeting, maybe the exploratory meeting, that mm-hmm. first one has to be it. We can't divulge too much. We can't make those strategic errors of too much information, too much about us. It needs to be really, the whole purpose of the first meeting is to get to the second meeting, build trust and credibility. In chapter three of your book, you talk about creating value positions, not value propositions. I thought that was an excellent way, that so succinctly said and so simple, and yet it's elegant and it means everything. And I totally get it. Let's unpack that for our listeners.
0: Yeah. Again, earlier we were talking about one of the common mistakes that salespeople make in too much information. There's this principle of threes that human beings love. And I did some research around it and it has to do with patterns. That that, Again, we as human beings are looking for patterns in the world. And apparently the first pattern from a number standpoint is three. And there's confidence and conviction and belief around things that are presented in three. So as a sales professional, you're going to want to identify three value positions that you're going to focus the conversation around in a discovery call or in an initial conversation. And the way that you get to those positions. And by the way, proposition is a suggestion. Position is you're taking a stand, which is why. I stop referring to value propositions as value props. So here are the elements that go into a successful value position. You as a sales professional understand the challenges that your prospect faces. Cause again, you talk with people like that individual every single day. So you know what they're facing. So what you need to do is look at what your product is and does and identify the unique things that solve those challenges for your prospect. That then becomes the focal point of the conversation. Now, one of the things that we addressed earlier on is that we live in a commoditized world. And when sales teams hear me say that, they're like, hey, we're a cellular company. There's nothing unique in what we do. That may be true, but more times than not, if you dig a little deeper, it's not. Another quick example, back years ago when the iPhone 5 first came out, all the cellular companies had access to selling the iPhone 5. Sprint and AT&T were running two different commercials. Here's what they did. Sprint at the time was offering unlimited data. That was their uniqueness. That was the only thing that was unique. So they built this problem in the minds of the consumer around, you don't want to be limited in data. You've got a, an iPhone that takes video and has music and takes pictures and why would you want to limit yourself? So they found something very unique and built a compelling emotional scenario of, hey, why would you want to limit yourself? TNT at the very same time was the only cellular company that allowed you to talk and surf at the same time. So they focus all of their ad campaigns around, hey, it's better to do two things than one. So those are some great examples of finding uniqueness. But here's where uniqueness can
1: also show up. I don't think anybody in your audience would say that chocolate is unique. Right. Or, my wife would. My wife would definitely tell you chocolate <laughs> is unique. There's certain types of chocolate, and then there's just no-go chocolate. Yeah, and yeah. Is, but I know what you mean. Yeah. Same thing with peanut butter.
0: But What happens when you bring peanut butter and chocolate together? Oh, you get Reese's peanut butter cups. That's right. Although I posed that question recently in a workshop in London and they said Nutella. Yeah,
1: that's her next favorite. (laughs) The hazelnut. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: sometimes what you have to do as a sales professional is look at several capabilities that you have and combine them in a way that stands out as being unique. Now that becomes the focal point of the conversation, but it isn't necessarily what you're going to say in the conversation. So what you have to do is you have to look at what is it that your product does that uniquely solves a challenge. And then from a value position statement or what you're going to actually say in the conversation, you're going to start that statement with, Michael, what if you could, and then complete that with what they can do differently, and then don't say anything about the product or service in that statement. Again, an example of this would be for a sales leader. Hey, what if you could increase the conversion rates in the early stage selling conversations? What if your sales team members could build more rapport and trust and credibility in those same early stage conversations? And finally, what if you could ensure that a larger percentage of your sales team is going to hit their quota? You can by partnering with Master Messaging. Now, you'll notice there was nothing in what I just said about what I do at Master Messaging. It's what the prospect can do differently because they have access to any capability that I can bring to them in solving their problem.
1: In your book, you give a lot of stories, a lot of anecdotes, a lot of examples, which are great. Chapter five of your book is all about leveraging the power of stories and you call them hooks. Story
0: is the most effective form of communication for human beings. That's been true for as long as we've been walking around on the planet. It's the way that information and detail gets transferred from one human being to another. There was an interesting TED talk that I watched, gosh, about a year ago, and I think it's only been out about two and a half years. And I think it was a Dutch scientist that was doing this research around the power of story and the coupling and the communication that takes place when one human being tells a story to another. In the TED Talk, he shows two human beings back to back having two different conversations and they have the monitors on their head monitoring their brain wavelengths. As you can imagine, their brain wavelengths are completely different. They turn and they face these two individuals to each other. One of them starts to tell a story to the other and immediately their brain wavelengths are completely in sync. There is no other form of communication that creates that type of bond between two human beings than story. Now, there are a number of different stories that you can use in a selling conversation. As a matter of fact, the stories that your audience have heard today have all been to lead up to a point that sales professionals need to understand. The likelihood that they're going to remember that point goes way up because it was contextualized into a story. That's right. Now, this is something that takes some time and practice, but again, it goes back to what you heard me say earlier, and that is, sure, you can pull out the PowerPoint deck and do the side-by-side approach, and hopefully that connects and somebody goes, yeah, I'll buy that. Or you could do things like whiteboarding or find intentional ways to introduce story into the conversation so that the person you're communicating with is paying attention and is participating in that story in a way that they'll remember the most important points that you want to remember.
1: You're a dad and you're a grandpa. Do you go by grandpa or papa?
0: Actually, I let my daughters pick the name. I wanted supreme commander.
1: That's a good one. I like that. Master. Yeah. I like, oh, the supreme commander's good. Yeah, I like that good. I'm papa. We just had number five and I'm expecting more. They say grandkids are like popcorn. It's... You wait, and all of a sudden it's pop, pop, and out they come. Whenever I tell the grandkids, or starting with their kids, they wanted to get ready, I would say, hey, go get ready for bed dad's going to tell you a story and when i was traveling on the road back in the early days before we had facetime before we had all that i put speaker boxes in their rooms and mom would get them ready for bed i could call in and i took a book with me and i would read them a story on a speaker box so i could actually have that part of it the conversation and story is important because people remember the stories the elements of the story and there's a whole story layout there's a whole process and you do give that in chapter five so i really encourage people if they want to get good at telling stories and anecdotes customers love that and they do remember the key points. They will always remember the story. Just move on a little bit here. Every salesperson knows what it's like to hear the word no. And we hate that. We hate objection or what we interpret as objections or resistance. Do you have any pro tips for handling objections or resistance in today's world?
0: Yeah. So there's a very specific technique in the book. More times than not, you're going to get objections that begin with something like, hey, I liked a lot of what I heard, but Right. Again, in the human language, anytime you hear the word, but just forget everything that happened before it, pay attention to what's coming after. They may say something like, hey, David, love the opportunity to increase the value, perceived value in early stage conversations, but I feel like you're too small. We're a boutique agency. It's three soon to be four of us, but we've worked with very large organizations like Great American Insurance, Aflac, Vant of WorldPay. So we've worked with some very, very large organizations. If I came back to them just with that answer, hey, you know, Michael, it's not a problem. We've worked with large organizations. It's fine. It wouldn't work because that objection came out of their limbic brain. They said, I feel like. That means that it's an emotional response. Right. And one of the things that we need to recognize as human beings is that you can't logic your way out of an emotional issue. So behavioral psychologists figured this out years ago. Imagine sitting in front of a psychologist and you tell them, I've got a fear for flying. And they look at you and go, Michael, that's ridiculous. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Did you know that it's actually more dangerous to get in your car and drive down the corner? They don't do that because you'd be offended. You'd run off and you'd never go see them again. So they use this principle called a reframe. And a reframe is when you use an analogy, a metaphor, a story that has nothing to do with the issue that they just brought to you to reframe it so that they can see the issue apart from the emotion. And the reason that they use reframe, they imagine you have a picture in your house. You take it down, put a new frame on it, put it back up on the wall. The next time somebody walks in and looks at that picture, they're going to go, hey, Michael, is that a new picture? It's not, but it's perceived differently because you put a new frame on it. And that's what a sales professional needs to be able to do with some of these emotional objections where the prospect goes, I feel like, I think, I believe anything that comes after that is coming out of the limbic brain and a logical response is not going to be enough to win the
1: day. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about your role through sales and through sales management and leadership roles and positions. And you really have to become a student of psychological behavior and behavioral aspects of people, how their brain works, how you can say things and create results. You ring the bell and the dog salivates. So that's what we're looking for, things that are already embedded in their systems. In your book, David, you talk about the sales conversation roadmap. Let's go ahead and explain what that is and what that looks like.
0: Yeah. One of the most important things that any sales professional needs to accomplish in early stage conversations is communicating value. Value is king. If you communicate high value, you're going to get the price point you're asking for. If you communicate high value, it's going to create a sense of urgency for your prospect to want the product sooner than later. Now, with that being said, in working with over 200 companies and asking this question of at least a thousand salespeople, the question is, how does a human being perceive value? And Michael, I've never gotten the right answer in asking that question across 11 years. And the reason is that the research was done by a behavioral psychologist by the name of Daniel Kahneman. And so Kahneman is widely recognized as one of the renowned behavioral psychologists in the world today. He wrote a book called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. Thinking Slow. Yeah.
1: 2002, and, I think he was a Nobel Prize winner, too, in economics. And yeah, the-
0: yeah, in the early 2000s. And so part of the value and part of the understanding that he's brought is how a human being perceives value. The simplified version is this. Value is perceived in a contrasting worldview. It's literally, this is what the world looks like, Mr. Prospect, without my product. This is what your world could look like with my product. And it's in the side-by-side contrast of those two things that people perceive value. Here's a real simple example. Every year, I go on a fundraising bike ride with my brother-in-law. And it's to raise money for children with autism. They drop us in the middle of Delaware. It's called Bike to the Beach. And based on where they drop you, you ride all the way to Foley Beach. And last year, we did a 50-mile ride. The organizers of the race, unbeknownst to them, the start point for that 50-mile ride was on a section of rural Delaware road that had been recently stripped of the top coat. That's not a recipe for a fun ride on a street bike. So for five miles, we're riding along, vibrating, and hoping our tires don't explode. And all of a sudden, we get to that smooth, newly paved section of road. When we hit that newly paved road, every one of the riders around us immediately exclaimed, oh my God, this is the smoothest road I've ever been on. Michael, they would not have said that if the contrast hadn't been there with the rough road. If they had started the race on the smooth road, we wouldn't have rightly perceived the value. So the question is, how do you construct a conversation that's going to communicate
1: high value. And it's the sales conversation roadmap. So you're contrasting status quo versus what could be. Or yes. Imagine what these. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. Earlier, we were talking about value positions and how you create a value position. So you look at what your product is and does and identify your unique ability to solve a problem. So that problem, you understand the challenges that your prospect faces. So that's where you're going to start the conversation. It starts with the challenges. And by the way, most human beings don't like having a finger pointed at them to say, hey, you've got a problem. I know you've got a problem. So don't say that. What you're going to say is, hey, in talking with other sales leaders, here's what I'm hearing. They're still experiencing challenges around the 80-20 split. It's actually 87-13 now. In addition to that, it's difficult in today's economy to find the top performers. What that means is that Some of the hires that they make are leaving within three to six months and leaving gaps inside of their organization as far as recognizing quota. So you're telegraphing what you know from talking with other sales leaders or other professionals like the prospect that you're talking to. Then you're going to give voice to the impact of those challenges because challenges don't exist in a vacuum. There used to be a commercial out there that Direct TV did where they started the commercial with, hey, when your cable goes out, you get frustrated. When you get frustrated, you go to the gym. When you go to the gym, you get hit in the eye with a racquetball and you get an eye patch. When you get an eye patch, people want to know how tough you are. People want to know how tough you are. You end up in a roadside ditch. Don't end up in a roadside ditch. Get rid of cable and get direct TV. So what they did is they used this principle of impact. So the problem was the cable went out, but it doesn't stop there. And that's true for your prospect's world. The challenge that they're facing It has a ripple effect inside of the organization that you need to give voice to. Once you've done that, then you can ask, now's a good time to ask questions. And one of the best open-ended questions is, hey, those are the challenges and the impact of the challenges that I'm hearing from other professionals like yourself, Michael. I'm curious, what does that look like in your world? And the reason you use look is because that's how people remember. We remember visually. And they're going to validate what you just said and then also introduce other additional challenges that they may be facing. Now you can start to ask some discovery questions. How many people does that affect? How many people do you have inside of your organization? How have you tried to solve that problem? What's the impact on your customer if you can't solve that problem? So really what you're doing is you're deepening their understanding of what the status quo really looks like, not what they thought it looks like, but what it really looks like. When you've done a good job of that, now you can flip the conversation, describe what they can do different with your product or service. When you describe what they can do different, you can't say anything about the product. And the reason for that is that the mistake that most salespeople make is they talk about the challenges that the prospect is facing, and then they flip the conversation and go, what we do is to solve that problem. You went from talking about them to talking about you. You just lost the contrast. Right. So you've got to start those statements with what if you could, and then just visually, just by your words, describe how their world would be better.
1: Yeah, imagine a world. And
0: now, after you've done a really good job of that, they're going to look at you and go, Michael, prove that's true. Okay, let's do a software demo, or let's do a case study, or you can talk to another client as a reference. Now they understand the value that is represented for them. And here's what happens more times than not. They'll look at you, Michael, and they'll go, okay, I I like that. How do you do that? Now, when you start to describe briefly what it is and does that creates that, they're going to be listening with completely different ears and completely different intent because they want to have the world that you just painted. So by conducting a discovery call that way, you've communicated high value because you've built these contrasting world views and it increases the likelihood and the opportunity to have that next call where you can go a little bit deeper around how that would play out inside of your prospects organization.
1: No, that's brilliant. No, you've really done a good job of that. And you've got that in chapter four of your book, How to Craft a Sales Conversation Roadmap, or you call it acronym SCR. So again, huge value here. You give a lot of detail inside the book. As far as where salespeople going are people with their careers in today's marketplace. Where's a good place for them to start? And obviously, we're going to recommend your book. And by the way, I think it's mislabeled 6x convert more prospects to customers it should be 10x convert more prospects into customers. I read books every week and been reading for years, and I always encourage people to read books and then take notes, take a book and study it and take those things and inside your book. You have lots of diagrams. You've got lots of illustrations and examples and details for it. Where's a good place for people to start? So, I'm going to give
0: you an answer that you're probably not expecting. And that is if I were a young, say, in college, thinking about a sales career, I would encourage them to be a server at a restaurant. Here's why. That makes sense. Here's why you'll learn how to relate to all different types of people because it's not a cookie cutter approach when you're serving human beings in a restaurant. Everybody has different tastes, everybody has different needs. And for me, foundationally, the five years that I spent in the service industry through high school and college, I I always answer that question with, that was the best foundation for a sales career because I learned how to adapt to different personality styles, depending on what they wanted and needed and were trying to accomplish. And again, there's a tremendous amount of resources out there as far as books, podcasts. And then I would find a mentor, somebody like you or me that has been doing this for a minute and come alongside somebody like that, spend an hour or two with them, just ask questions around, hey, I bumped up against this. What would be a better way of solving that? Or I'm preparing for this call. Can you come alongside and help me? So there are a number of ways to get good at the sales profession, but I'm gonna go back to something I said a few minutes ago. Be creative, be different, stand out from the crowd, invest the time and energy that it's gonna take to do that.
1: I'd add, be curious. And there's lots to look at and change the approach. Stay away from those legacy traditional approaches and create something new for yourself on a one-to-one or a customer-centric approach. And I think we're both on the same page with that. And do your homework. Don't take a lazy approach to this. And like I say, you covered tons of, this is one of the best sales books I've read in a long time. So congratulations to you, David Kirchin. Where's the best place to find the book?
0: Actually on Amazon, or you can go to mastermessaging.com and buy it directly from the website, either one.
1: Perfect. David, thanks so much for your time, your insights and the wisdom. And like I say, you've done a great job with this. So delighted to have you today. Michael, it was a joy to be with you. Thank you. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My executive producer is Beth Smith and director of research, Tori Smith. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. This podcast is subject to copyright by Summit Media. Goodbye.